Poetry is, above all, a singing art of natural and magical connection, because though it is born out of one's personal solitude, it has the ability to reach out and touch in a humane and warmly illuminating way. The solitude, even the loneliness of others. That's why, to me, poetry is one of the most vital treasures that humanity possesses. It is a bridge between separated souls. And they're the words of Brendan Canani, a national treasure in Ireland and poet, who we'll talk about later on today. Balcha, welcome to Connected Communication a podcast exploring the intriguing interplay between language, culture and the brain, sharing speaking secrets along the way. I'm your host, Christine. My soul was somewhat separated as a child, and I used poetry to bridge the gap between what was happening inside me, my own loneliness and solitude, and the life that was happening on the outside, blending the inner and the outer. I was published actually from a very young age, not in anything major, but in a couple of compilation books and uh, a few other competition books that I entered my poetry into. I have loved poetry for as long as I can remember. When I was seven and I started studying speech and drama with my mum, I began also competing and being examined, which I did for over 13 years, regularly winning the poetry recital competitions. Drama, I wasn't too great at. My sister was brilliant at that, one of my sisters. But poetry, there was just something about it that evoked in me a depth of connection to words, imagery and language that little else did. I remember being in secondary school, which we go to from the age of about 11 or 12, maybe 13 for some kids, to 17 or 18 in Ireland, possibly 19 for some that might have started a bit later or repeated years. And being in sixth year, which is the final year, studying Sylvia Platt and having these arguments with my teacher because of the interpretation of Sylvia Platt's poetry. And there was a lot of stuff about depression and sadness and her mental state that I remember thinking, I don't actually think she was feeling like this when she wrote this poem. But sure, I was only a teenager. What was I to know about poetry and the leaving certificate answers? I was supposed to learn what I was told and be able to talk it or speak it, as we should say. I look back on those times and think, hmm, if I'd studied harder or worked a little bit more on my poetry, would I have gone in a different direction in life? But that's not to be worried about now. I still love it. I still use it when I'm working with my clients. I still read it for myself and have a lot of it recorded on my online platform as part of the exercises for when you're developing your voice. So today, As part of the Irish storytelling series, we're going to explore poetry a little bit through the words of Brendan Connelly, as I said, an Irish treasure. Just before I start, 
I'd like to say a quick hello to a couple of people, names who've come up quite a lot over the past while, who keep coming back and listening to the podcast. So, Luciana, as you walk to work, I hope you're well. And this wording or my mention of you gives you a smile. David, Laura, thank you for tuning in regularly and constantly coming back to the podcast. And to those of you who've left comments and reviews, I appreciate you. I am an independent podcaster. This is, uh, I hope, will become one of my full-time jobs. It's not going to be the full full full-time job, but it's a big investment for me to make and I hope to be able to continue it. So the more popular it gets, the more reviews I get, the more I'll hopefully be able to reach out for sponsorship. I'd prefer not to have to ask for sponsorship and to have people join the communication club and support the podcast at the same time. So if you are someone who can afford to do that, it would be a big help to me to allow me early next year to reinvest in in my production of the podcast. You also allow it then to stay free for those who can't afford it. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about Irish storytelling through the world of poetry. Brendan Connelly was a poet, academic and scholar. Born in a town called Listole in County Kerry, which actually has races every year that an ex-boyfriend of mine's father used to go to. In 1936, he was born the same year my grandmother was born and went on to become a professor of modern literature at Trinity College Dublin, winning the hearts of students and apparently long-term prisoners. I can't find any more information about who the prisoners were or where they were. I can only assume it was Kilmainham Jail. He passed away a little over two years ago. In fact, two years and three weeks to be exact. So it's appropriate, I think, for us to be covering him today and talking a little bit about Irish storytelling through his poetry with an example poem that I spoke for one of my grades in speech and drama. He was a very well-known figure in his adopted Dublin. Walking round, talking to people, sitting in overtime cafes after a number of years sitting in bars, generally connecting the gown, as they say in Trinity, with the general folk on the on the ground throughout Dublin. A battle with alcoholism took him to translating Blood Wedding, a book written by Federico García Lorca, whom I studied at college and was speaking about just last week with my former lecturer, my Spanish lecturer, in Andalusia, where García Lorca was from and where I now live. And it was an incredible idiosyncrasy for me. I listened to Blind Boy at the moment and the Blind Boy podcast, dipping in and out of different episodes. And what I'm learning and realising is that he has this underlying theme or undercurrent running through the episodes of his podcast. He gets people to go back to the very beginning and listen from the start because his goal is to thread the stories through. And as I'm listening to him, I realise, you know, the same thing is happening with me, but I theme it a little bit differently for mine. 
in blocks of themes. I'm only new to podcasting, so I haven't found my groove completely yet, whereas he's a, a dab hand at it at, ne- at this point. But what he also does is make me realise all of the idiosyncratic connections in the work that I'm doing. So as I said, I was talking the other day with my former Spanish lecturer who was in, over in Spain for a week visiting about Federico García Lorca. And he was from Andalusia. Then I start listening to a podcast by Blind Boy last night and he's talking about being in Andalusia and telling this history of a bomb being found in the ocean by this man in a place in Andalusia. And then I start doing my research for Brendan Canelli to learn a little bit more about him. And I realised that he translated a book by Federico García Lorca. All these little idiosyncrasies. And here's one more. Lorca was killed on Franco's orders in 1936, the year Canelli was born. He too was a, spo- uh, was a poet and quite outspoken against the Franco regime. And earlier tonight, just to connect all of the jigsaw puzzle pieces together, I was listening to a Christy Moore song. Now, if you were listening to the podcast last week, you'll have heard me explain the structure of Irish storytelling using a Christy Moore song. And I'm learning quite a few of them, or I'm, I'm aiming to learn a few of them at the moment because I want to be able to sing a few in pubs sometimes if sing-alongs start. And I was listening to Christy Moore earlier on as I was cooking my dinner, my typical habit of an evening to, to relax and, and come down from the day. And the song recounts a historical connection between Irish soldiers and the fight against Franco. So as I was listening, I thought, oh, I would think I'll add that to the list of Irish stories told through song in the podcast series. I hadn't yet done the research to find out that Brendan Canelli had translated a Garcia Lorca story. So there you are, all these threads tying together like the woven tapestries or baskets that I mentioned last week. Canelli was born into a world of stories, growing up in pubs in rural Ireland. It was a gift that took me unawares, he said, and I accepted it. Noted for his character use in poetry, he explored what drove evil in humanity to depths scarcely probed seeking to understand and share that understanding with others through his works. As he got older, his work grew darker, though the intent to understand and educate lingered. You'll hear a bit of that darkness in the poem that I'm going to speak today. He relished in reading his works, seeing firsthand how his audiences reacted, an important aspect of poetry recital. And so that takes us to this week's theme, storytelling in Irish poetry. When we think of speaking poetry, we think of the speaker's task. The task is to awaken the mind's eye of the listener, to make them create and see. John Mansfield said, not an Irish poet, anybody who's listening. When you have made the varying minds of a hundred listeners one single mind of joy, that joy will enter into you 
and show you possibilities of art stretching into infinity. Speaking poetry influences how we speak generally. A lesson I learned very early on was that poetry is the great discipline for the speaking voice. When you speak poetry well, you are able to speak well on all other occasions. A technique that we learn when we learn to recite poetry and speak poetry can be brought into the inflection that we use when we speak in general, a command that we can have over an audience or a general group of conversation. Poetry is energetic. Just as communication is energetic, we have resonance. We use emotional energy, mental energy, vocal energy and intellectual energy. There's an inner flame inside us, a gathering of emotional energy that's sustained until the last breath, but which in speakers often peters out. When I say peters out, that's an, an old idiomatic phrase, um, or phrasal verb, I should say. If we want to get technical, the voice drifts off or trails off. Often it's because a person loses breath. Sometimes it's because they lose confidence in what they're saying. And sometimes it's it's just because the volume goes down so low. I've noticed when I've listened back to a couple of my podcast recordings that my mic hasn't picked up on the ending of some of my words and phrases, which makes it sound like my voice has petered out. So I'm being very emphatic today. When we speak, whether it's poetry, prose, drama, conversation or presentation, we must have a desire to communicate. But the desire wants to come from that inner flame. If it's laborious, it will be heard. Just as a poet is compelled to pen the words, so too is a speaker compelled to share the thoughts, feelings and experiences with the listener, involving them. Listening is not passive. We don't want to be strained, tense or push anything. The heart cries out to be heard. An inner flame is lit and warmth seeps from it. There's involvement. In speaking poetry and in speaking to share with another, the speaker must be involved, immersing themselves in the subject matter. I reckon, as I reflect on this learning, I have studied speech and drama up to diploma level. I'm a qualified teacher. And I realise that the reason I must go into so much depth when I'm doing things down rabbit holes of research, looking things up and asking why all the time and trying to understand and find out comes from this understanding of immersing ourselves in the subject matter, in the subject of the poet, in the understanding of the theme and the context all around it. Dull eyes will communicate dull emotions. A speaker is a conduit, an instrument through which a poem is shared, an, an idea is shared, a concept, a thought, a fact. It's not enough to know the words by heart, but to know them from the heart, to feel ourselves inside the poem, be involved in the poem as deeply as its creator. Technical and emotional come together. Now you might be thinking here, what's, what's this got to do with how I speak and how I communicate? Well, I'm not speaking poetry to you right now. No more am I singing a song, but there's a, a lilt in a musicality to the way that I speak. 
there's an intended inflection in the stretching of the notes inside the words that I use, in the control of my breath, in the pitch, in the pace, in the pause. In everything that I do, there is intent, and yet the intent is not focused. I force nothing because I've been doing it for so long. Other speakers that you'll hear, I'm going to say Blind Boy is another one. He's a wee bit more musical though. Do the same thing. The technical and the emotional come together. It's not laborious. We don't notice the technique. When we think of poetry, just as communication, context is important. A poem is not set in limbo. We don't have no context. There is no uh, missing story behind it. We look inside the poem, understanding the poem, the poet, the time and the moment. It's the same with a presentation, with a negotiation, with communicating across cultures, communicating with family, friends. We shift and we adapt how we speak and how we communicate based on what we understand of the people we're communicating with and the environment that we're in. Think about yourselves as you go home. This is a generally a good example to use that we default back into sometimes almost child or teenage-like behaviours when we're back in the family group because there's a role that we play. That's our understanding of the context. It's the same with poetry. A failing I had, which still burns me to this day, was allowing myself to be convinced to speak and I mean this in no negative way, but to speak my mum's poem at the 20th anniversary of the Fesh. For the first time, we had a competition for adults over 18. And Maya Angelou is one of my favourite poets, so I was going to speak Phenomenal Woman. That was my goal. But mum had published a book of poetry and she wrote one particular poem about her being pregnant and having a baby, which was based on on me, her first child, and the whole emotional rigmarole of it. Now, because I love my mum and I wanted to support her, I, I agreed to speaking that poem. I regret it because I wanted to win. <laughs> I like winning poetry competitions. And I knew probably maybe not enough or as much as I know now that I wasn't going to be able to speak the poem about pregnancy and a baby in the same way as I could speak my Angelus Phenomenal Woman. Why? Because I don't have kids. I've never wanted to have children. I love my nieces and nephews. I have great relationships with children in my life, but I never wanted my own. So I don't understand that whole mindset and that whole experience of of everything that happens. I couldn't portray it genuinely and authentically in the poem. And in parts I ended up sounding like I was shouting and screaming. But maybe it happened because now I'm recording this podcast and I get to reflect on that moment. Pace and vocal range are incredibly important in poetry just as they are when we speak to communicate. It all connects. There is a pace for the mood of the poem, the poet's intention and the audience, based on what they're able to follow. Sometimes pace quickens and slows. Sometimes it 
slows a little bit more than it quickens. But in all cases, there's an emotional connection. We explore the essence of the piece, whether it's a poem or a presentation. Is it reflective? Is it factual? Is it considered? Is it speaking in the mood of the moment? Is there a sudden outburst of heart? Each of those has its own speed. The range or the pitch needs to be considered as well. If we start too high, we may sound like we're shouting. Think about going into a presentation, your high energy. You start it off really high in your voice, but the people in the room aren't at the same pitch level as you or their brains aren't in the same place and you might make them think that you're shouting at them. The poetry is the same. Finding our normal pitch range and exploring the range that goes higher and lower is vital. And you can do all of this in the Connected Communication Club. I have audio content and exercises for, for all of it, finding your pitch, finding your range and expanding it through your resonators. When played like an instrument, vocal pitch can range from the flute to the trumpet, taking an audience on a musical journey, adding imagery along the way. Mood and emotion are essential. Poetry is an evocation of emotion. So too is communication. To breathe and pause in the right places, the speaker needs to know the mood of the poet. The emotion determines the development throughout, shifting and changing, as you'll hear in today's example. We might layer the emotion upon itself, so different emotions one upon the other as we learn the piece, starting with one emotion and then adding another and adding another, building all the time. In the same way a speaker might build on a, a financial report before revealing the final figures at the end. We need to pay attention to the words and sounds in what we speak. Again, whether this is poetry, prose, drama, presentation, meetings, negotiations. What are the groups of thought? What makes sense to put together? How will the listener make sense of what we're saying? Where do we need to add pauses to group words together to allow them time to follow and to reflect? Listen for alliteration, the continuation of sounds. Let words sound as they describe. Look for that onomatopoeia. Paint pictures in sound. Care about and pay attention to the listener. Your technique is important, but your emotion is equally so. What you're, you're sharing and invoking in the listener channels the intention of the poet. As I said before, the speaker is an instrument through which a poet speaks. When we speak from the heart, some might say we are an instrument of spirit. When I speak from the heart without thinking, not, no, I can't say without thinking, it's flowing from somewhere deep in my subconscious. But we often say that we're inspired. You hear a spe somebody speak, they haven't apparently prepared it, they've been asked a question and suddenly they get into a flow. It seems to be inspired speech. We seek to find balance, to enjoy a delicate dalliance between the vocal and the musical, never losing the meaning behind the words. Poetry in Ireland is a form of storytelling, just as it is around the world. Scenes are set, atmospheres created, and moralistic lessons are learned. Mastering the vocal instrument is a journey into the heart, the mind, the spirit, and the soul. 
It's a great deal more than printing a piece of text from which you read. To gift yourself with the technique of poetry recital is to enrich your inner and outer world and the worlds of those with whom you share it. When you're technically and emotionally preparing, you can do it alone. You can do it alone through downloading poetry and listening to it. You can do it alone by joining the Connected Communication Club and not connecting in at all. Or you can join live calls and get monthly coaching as you work through the content, using the poetry I've already hosted or on your own. I've even put some Shakespeare's Macbeth in there that I did for a client once. I'm not a big fan of Shakespeare, like I said last week, but I do what you need. One of the most impactful and memorable poems I studied, poems, that was very Irish there, poem, <laughs> I hear my mother. It's not poem, it's poem in Ireland. One of the most memorable poems I studied for, I think it was grade four, maybe grade five, was Brendan Connelly's The Stones. I'll give you a content warning here. It's got some pretty graphic lines of physical attack in it. But the message and the moral is an important one. I chose it particularly as well because I've talked quite a lot about bias and discrimination in the past few months on the podcast. And this is a, a really good example of it. As I've been preparing this episode, I realised actually that the poem is another reason I learned to fight against discrimination, the dangers of judging those we don't know, and the resounding impact the words of parents have on their children, often quite unconscious to the parents themselves. Thinking back to the elements present in Irish stories, if you're not sure what I'm talking about here, go back and listen to the episode from last week. We hear Canelli first set the scene. He goes on to develop the characters, later shifting our view of one character in a twist of awareness. We flow along with the lyric, steeped in alliteration and onomatopoeic impact. Metaphor and simile, whimpering like a beaten pup, stimulate our senses, opening the mind's eye, capturing the heart. True to story form, Canelli introduces conflict but do we come to a resolution? That I will leave you to decide, listener. There's little humour in these lines, and neither does it need local variation. For a bravado swollen pack such as the one which chases Nelly could be equally as found in Dublin as Dundalk, in Kerry as in Cork, in Limerick as in Letterkenny. Nelly is the legend of this poem. Not as legendary as the bull-burgling Queen Maeve, but a reflection of many a quiet soul in Ireland who found themselves on the harmful side of legend. Like a man named Jesus Jones in my hometown of Dundalk, bullied for being different, beloved by many all the same. Brendan Connelly's works, certainly those I have read, were crafted as skillfully as a basket woven of willow prepared to be preserved and passed down, observant of oral tradition, considerate of community and context, moralistic and meaningful, written for the reader to recite, reflect and remember. Times that have long since gone by, but cannot ever be forgotten.
remembering Brendan Canelli. The Stones Worried mothers bawled her name to call wild children from their games. Nelly Mulcahy, Nelly Mulcahy. If you don't come home, she'll carry you off in her big black bag. Her name was Fear, and Fear begat obedience. But one day she made a real appearance. A harmless hag with a bag on her back. When the children heard, they gathered together and in trice were stalking the little weary traveller. Ten, twenty, thirty, forty. Numbers gave them courage, though, had they known it. Nellie was more timid by far than the timidest there. Once or twice she turned to look at the bravado-swollen pack. Slowly, the chant began. Nelly Mulcahy, Nelly Mulcahy, wicked old woman, wicked old woman. One child threw a stone, another did likewise. Soon the little monsters were furiously stoning her, whose name was Fear. When she fell, bleeding to the ground, whimpering like a beaten pup, even then they didn't give up, but pelted her like mad. Suddenly they stopped, looked at each other, then at Nellie lying on the ground, shivering. Slowly they withdrew, one by one. Silence. Silence. All the stones were thrown. Between the hedges of their guilt, cane children shambled home. Alone, she dragged herself up, crying in small, half-uttered moans, limped away across the land, black bag on her back, agony racking her bones. Between her and the children, like hideous forms of fear, the stone.